0: esteemed audience and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm Rob Kant, as you know, the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. What a novel. It's an amazing novel. If you haven't, if you've read the novel, you know, but if you haven't read the novel, you're missing out. But good news: if you have a Kindle, a phone, anything where you can read an electronic book, you can download the electronic book of Banneker Bones and the uh, Giant Robot Bees for free. Uh, whenever you're listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Get a copy. If you like it, leave a review. That's greatly appreciated. Get yourself ready for Banneker Bones and the Alligator People, which will be available next month. Uh, Banneker Bones is an 11-year-old biracial uh, detective. Uh, He and his cousin, Ellicott Skullworth, are going to fight giant robot bees, and then they're going to fight alligator people. You can't ask for a more fun time than that, so check it out. Download your copy for free. Uh, Under the super secret pen name, Robert Kent, I have written some horror novels, including the young adult novel, All Together Now, A Zombie Story, and All Right Now, A Short Zombie Story. If you like The Walking Dead, you like your zombies slow, violent, and mean-spirited, these are the stories for you. They're also, there's there's a bit of romance and some humor, so that's a good time. Uh, And then I've also written the five uh, volume serial novel, the Book of David, this one uh, altogether now, uh, an older reader, say 13, 14, they'll probably be fine. There isn't any profanity in that novel. There's just a lot of zombie violence. If they've watched The Walking Dead, they're going to be okay. The Book of David means business. This, one, this one's really nasty and really mean-spirited, and it gets mean-spirited. Uh, more mean spirited as you go. So, you start off with chapter one. Chapter one, the ebook, is free to download whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Uh, check it out. See if it's something you're interested in. But the idea is to call readers, because by the time we get to chapter five, the longest of the bunch, this book is just through the looking glass insane. We're talking politics, religion, everything that uh, would be rude and, and terrible to discuss that I won't discuss here on the show. But if you'd like to read me discuss them, the book of David is available. It's available now. Check that out. Uh, coming up on the Middle Grade Ninja Podcast YouTube show thing on Tuesday, April 30th, we will be chatting with literary agent Elena Roth Parker, which I am extremely excited about. Uh, and then in May, we're going to be talking uh, with literary agent June John Rudolph, June John John Rudolph. Uh, and then uh, we'll also be talking with Molly O'Neill uh through the second uh, week of June which I'm also very excited about. And then we're going to talk to authors Jessica Lawson, uh, Daniel Jose Older, and Maurice Broaddus. I'm reading Maurice's book, The Usual Suspects, this week. It's fantastic. It'll be available in May, which is why uh, he and I will be talking uh, just past its launch. Uh, Maurice runs MoCon. MoCon is my favorite Indianapolis convention, uh, and it is next weekend. So it's going to be May 3rd through May 5th. It's 75 bucks, and that includes the food. If you're anywhere in the Midwest area, it is worth coming to because I'm going to be there. Maurice is going to be there. A number of excellent authors are going to be there, as well as some literary agents, some editors, people you want to go and meet. It's a very laid-back conference. Uh, everybody starts drinking around 11 o'clock in the afternoon, and they continue drinking until late into the evening. Uh, you're chatting with writers. You're learning. I think I learned more at that conference than I've learned at any other conference I've attended, and it's only seven 75 uh, bucks. So go to mauricebradus.com, get yourself signed up for that. Uh, as always, you can read uh, interviews with literary agents, authors, publishing professionals, all kinds of great folks at middlegradeninja.com, including today's guest, who I'm very excited to welcome, uh, Allison S. Weiss. Allison, how are you?
1: I'm great. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you so much for uh, making the time to be here with us. Uh, Why don't we start, if you would give esteemed audience kind of an overview of your background?
1: Sure. Um, I'm currently um, what I call an editorial consultant. Um, So I work with um, authors and publishers and packagers on a variety of projects, um, whether it's just kind of doing a glorified readers' report and just giving a read and some top-level feedback about uh, market viability, or really going down in the trenches and you know polishing every single word um, with a client. Uh, before that, I spent about three and a half years at Sky Pony Press, which was the children's imprint of Skyhorse Publishing, um, and I was an editor. I was editorial director there. Um, and before that, I basically started my career at Egmont USA.
0: Cool, uh, for those of us that that aren't in the know, what's the difference between an editorial director and just an editor?
1: Sure, Um, the editorial director is kind of in charge of the whole kind of editorial focus of an entire list. So uh, I had a staff working under me um, and while I was acquiring and editing, I was also there um, kind of in a management capacity to take a look at the whole list um, that we were creating um, and making sure that we were we had a vision, we were saying something um, and everything kind of fit together and
0: all the pieces were coming together properly. So would you be, we've been talking with a, a couple of literary agents and a publicist here recently uh, who shared with us the getting through the gatekeepers at the, at the publishers. Would that have been you if they found an editor who liked the book that didn't have to go and convince you that, that you should also like the book?
1: at my house um we we acquired by editorial committee so if an editor uh was really keen on a project really excited um they would bring it to an editorial meeting um and we would all read um and um kind of weigh in with our thoughts about what we thought was great and what uh maybe was going to be a challenge or needed some work um and from there if we had enough people together who really felt strongly about the project. Um, the editor would then put, do some paperwork, um, put together a proposal, um, and then I would work with our uh, at Skyhorse with our, our publisher who um, kind of had sign off power on all projects. Um, and um, he would ultimately make the final call. Um, but I think that uh, in, in terms of the children's list, um, for the most part he was pretty supportive of what we wanted to do so if the editorial team all felt strongly um there was a pretty good chance that we were going to at least try to go for it
0: you. and um when you how old were you when you got your start in publishing
1: um i was 20 i was 22 i think i'm pretty i, I graduated at 21 so it took me about a year to find a job um and it was the best uh, Mother's Day present that my mom ever got.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you, got the news that you got the job right at Mother's Day. And she's like, oh, was, happy right, Mother's yeah. Day to me. My baby is not going to starve. <laughs> <laughs> and were you uh, interning at that point? Or what was your entry level position um, the publishing?
1: I, I did the um, at that point, Random House had a really fantastic internship program uh, that they offered in summers. Um, and so uh, the summer between junior and senior year of college, um, I was lucky enough to be accepted to that program. So it was a 10-week intensive program where you worked specifically uh, with a group in a specific department, um, but it still offered ground-bound um, lunches and uh, projects and opportunities to kind of learn other facets of uh, the publishing world. So I interned um with Delacorte Books for Young Readers, which was then just part of Random House. Now, I guess it would be Penguin Random House. Um, and I, uh, day three, I was sure that working on uh, children's and YA was the only thing I wanted to do. I loved it so much.
0: What was it uh, specifically about uh, about children's and YA that uh, drew, you, drew you to that over the adult stuff or anything else you might have wanted to work on?
1: Um, I kind of feel like I refound Children's NYA uh, in college. Um, I was one of those kids who read boxcar children and a lot of middle grade voraciously. And then when I hit uh, middle school, I kind of did this jump where I jumped directly from middle grade to be like, dad, what should I read? And he was just giving me tons of adult books. and. Um, you know, all the classics, um, and I, I really enjoyed that, but I realized at some point in there that I think I was only reading for school, and I wasn't necessarily reading for fun, um, and in college, I kept finding myself going to, uh, uh, our, our main college bookstore was a Barnes & Noble, so you would have your, your school books there, but you also had, you know, all the the offerings of, of a chain, and I kept finding myself going to the the children's department. Um, And I would just stare at the books and it started with being like, hey, I recognize that author from when I was a kid. And then um, I would gradually buy a couple here and a couple there. And I just, I really found myself falling in love with YA at that point. Um, I loved that um, there were really, really specific rules about uh, what had to be there to make make the story stay engaging uh, for young readers. Uh, but at the same time, there was just such a sense of wonder and whimsy. And even in your most apocalyptic story, there, there's always that grain of hope. There's always um, the sense that things can be a little bit better. Um, and uh, I just so really connect to that idea that, that we can turn an escape into books
0: makes sense. And you're a, you're a voracious reader, right?
1: I, I hope I
0: am. I'm always excited to talk about readers and just reading habits. So what are your reading habits now? How many books are you reading a year or a week? How often do you oh, read Oh God. Day? Um,
1: so when I'm in a good speed reading mode, which I can't say I am right now, um, I can do a book in about three days. Um, but I think I've just been picking books lately that are, a lot longer, and you know, when I'm really deep in doing client work, there's less time to kind of read um, in between things during the day. Um, so, I don't know how long books are taking a little bit longer, but um, I am one of those people who can't fall asleep unless I read. So, I read a little bit for pleasure every night before I go to sleep. Um, You know, I live in New York City, so if I'm on the subway or on a bus, I have a book with me um, because it's a better way to pass the time. Um, I just, you know, I'm always reading. And then one of the other things that I I really love um, about the reading schedule that I've kind of constructed is that um, I tend to then pass my books on to my dad, who has also turned into quite the middle grade YA reader. Um, because he, um, just will kind of read anything I give him, um, and now he's developing opinions, which I find really fun, um, but growing up, I think that he read, but he wasn't reading kind of as voraciously, and he now reads far too late at night, and then complains when he gets to get up around the morning.
0: And uh, have you got any? I, I know it's always putting you on the spot if I ask. What are, I, I usually ask: What are your three favorite books? And of course, I've already oh. asked you that uh, in Middle Grade Ninja. But I also know that answer changes depending on when I ask. Have you got some recent favorites you care to share?
1: Oh gosh, this this question is always so hard, and I'm reading so often that I I have to say that I sort of forget sometimes. Um, I recently read um, a book that was published maybe about 10 years ago, Um, but it was an amazing middle grade called um, The Girl Who Could Fly, um, which was described as Little House on the Prairie meets X-Men. I'd call it Anne of Green Gables meets X-Men, but I know there's a sequel that came out that I'm itching to get my hands on, and a third book is coming out next year. So um, I really loved that and have been talking to friends um, about that a lot lately. Um, right now I'm reading Marcus Zusak's uh, Bridge of Clay, so, and I'm really enjoying that. Um, I think, you know, I, I'm always sucker for, um, middle grade that I feel kind of like our old friends. Um, so I always, um, when asked what my favorites are, I always turn to books. Um, like Savvy. Um, Tumbling Blue is gorgeous. Um, Circus Mirandis is also another favorite that I like. Um, and then on the YA end, um, I keep on finding my heart going back to Out of the Easy um, by Rita Zapattas, Um And I can't wait for her new book. So. <laughs>
0: You're a real book fan. I can I can hear oh, yeah. it on your face that you love reading and that you're excited about books, which is exactly uh, the sort of person you want to partner with to It's your book. So that's excellent. Um, I have another question for you on the back of that, and it's gone right out of my head because now all I can think about is how much I also love Savvy. <laughs> um, let's, talk, uh, let's talk a little bit about what you're doing now because you're um, uh, not... you're 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 offering editing consulting services specifically to writers. So what, what are the services that you're offering now? Yeah.
1: Sure. Uh, So I offer a pretty wide range of services, um, everything from phone consultations where um, somebody can hire me and we'll just talk on the phone for an hour about whatever they want to talk about, whether that's um, market conditions or, um, Trying to figure out where to focus um, their writing attention because they have so many projects and they love them all. And which one, which one should they turn to next? Um, you know, really, I I let them guide it um, completely. It's it's their kind of hour to do with as they please. Um, I also do kind of more specific traditional editorial work. Um, and that may be um, as top level as just reading a project for somebody and giving them um, kind of impressions, what, what's working, what's not, um, maybe some very preliminary ideas of, of how they might fix it. Um, then we can drill in a little bit deeper and do some global editing. Um, and that involves working directly in a manuscript with feedback, um, but still focusing kind of on the the big picture problems. So, um, is the character developed enough? Um, is the pacing good? Um, are the stakes there for for the story? Um, and really working on how they can dive in to, to develop the project better. Um, drilling even further, um, I also offer line editing services, um, and that's for somebody who has their their their. Big picture stuff is probably really solid. Maybe there's a little bit more tweaking to do, but we're basically good. And now we're working on the line level to make sure that every word is just perfect and singing. Um, I read recently um, this great, I think it's a meme, but um, this kind of, the summary of it is that um, your writing should really be music. And I really believe that, that if all of your languages is is, uh, coming together properly, then uh, it just flows beautifully and creates its own song. Um, and so that's what we're really doing in the line level. Um, I also um, offer services for, you know, looking at a par- um, part of a project, a partial, um, that's often good if you're submitting to a writing contest um, or you're trying to get ready um, for um, querying and you really just wanna make sure those, those first chapters are really strong um, also, I help with, you know, query letters, um, synopses,
0: um, as people need.
1: And Will you there's
0: write a synopsis? synopsis? Is there an, an amount of what money that? that we can pay you to get you to write a synopsis?
1: No, I'm not going to write the synopsis for you, but I'll help you make sure it's strong. Um.
0: You almost had me. Let's Take all the money, just do it.
1: No, no, no. no. <laughs> I have to tell you, editors hate writing synopses as much as authors do. And we have to do it all the time when we're writing copy. So uh, we, we feel your pain. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, let me, I've got lots of questions about some of those things uh, that, that you just mentioned. But before I do, uh, what, uh, where can uh, esteemed audience who's watching or listening to this uh, and they're getting excited. They're saying, oh my gosh, Allison that's why she sounds like she's on the ball and oh, she's got what it takes to make take my project to the next level. What's the best way for them to find out more information about your services and to reach out to you?
1: Um, they can go to my website, Um, and there's all the information is there. There's a specific author page where you can see all of the services um, laid out. Um, and there's a contact me and it's as easy as you write me an email. Um, I ask when, uh, somebody, um, specifically wants me to work on a project that I, that they send me a sample of their work. Um, and that's really because I am only going to take on clients, um, who I really feel I can help. So if I look at your project and I just don't feel like I am going to be, um, useful to you then I just don't feel like it's right for me to work with you. Um, So, you know, that's why I ask people to send me a sample of their work. Um, I will look at that sample. I will give you some initial feedback, um, totally for free. There is no fee associated with that. Um, And um, with that feedback, um, if I feel that I can help you, um, I'll also give you the quote for the services that, that you've queried me about.
0: It makes sense and what uh, what sort of projects are you best suited toward? What kind of clients are you actively seeking?
1: um I work on a picture book through y a um I think in my career, my sweet spot has always been really chapter book through y a um so i um particularly love working on that um in terms of genre um I have pretty wide eclectic tastes um I think the, it's almost easier to say what I'm not the best at. Um, I think, you know, if, you're, if your story is really super, super high fantasy um, or super, super high um, sci-fi, I'm maybe not the best fit, um, but I can still, you know, give you strong feedback. Um, but um, I certainly do like sci-fi and fantasy. I, I tend, when I was acquiring, I tended to gravitate toward what I would call commercial sci-fi and fantasy. So a little bit more um, consumer accessible um, than the- What of the, the, uh, the
0: differences? differences? What, what, what makes something more consumer accessible versus um, high fantasy sci-fi?
1: I think it's, you know, when we're going into, I'm gonna do this on the fantasy side, when we're going into, um, to super high specific, um, we we can call them Tolkien-esque names. I love Tolkien. It's not a knock against Tolkien. Um, But I think there's a really specific reader for that. I think you have to be really entrenched um, in reading that world to um, really inform um, moving forward with it. And um, while I enjoy being a casual reader in that world, I don't know that I have the, depth of knowledge to um, feel like I'm not going to perhaps lead somebody astray um, in terms of the um, the great historical weight of um, what you're trying to, to live up to in there. That makes
0: sense. Uh, and for those uh, watching or listening, I, I think the Fellowship of the Ring is just, eh, it's all right. A lot of walking, a lot of singing, a lot of endless meals. <laughs> <laughs> By the time you get to the two towers, now we're talking, but that whole house of tom bombado sequence, I I nearly put it down oh, if it hadn't been promised be the greatest book ever. So let me know in the comments, I'll take the hate, it's fine. <laughs> 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 and then um oh gosh, what's the, the next question I'd have for you? Well, let's talk about some specific issues that that you can spot when you're when you're digging into a manuscript. So you mentioned pacing what are some telltale signs that the pacing needs to be tightened or needs some work?
1: So um, I tend to be an editor who really likes writing that that moves. Um, I love beautiful descriptive passages, um, but there's always a balance to any writing that you're doing. Um, So I think in general, if you're looking at a page and you're just having pages and pages and pages of exposition, then chances are there are probably pacing problems in there. Um, just because you need a breakup um, in some sense. If it's just eons of description, then we, we run into talking problems where you're just kind of, you, you can kind of zone out. Um, so that's kind of just like a, a quick check Um, but in general for me, um, if I have characters sitting there talking to each other and just talking, 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 then nothing's happening either. Um, so it's kind of finding that right balance between, um, you know, lingering enough to, to suck us into the world and, um, making sure that we have enough time to breathe and kind of absorb it.
0: Do you use any kind of a breakdown, like a guide to this is how many thousands of words before our inciting incident? This is how many thousands of words before our first dramatic turn? Uh, um, anything like I that, where you specifically get, use um,
1: But I think it just really, I think it just varies from project to project. Um, I, I think that I find that if I am reading and I'm kind of getting distracted, then um, there's often a pacing problem. And you know, for me, I think that um, one of the most important parts of writing is revising. And so that means that as an author, uh, you know, you love your words, you get your words on the page. Um, but uh, the bulk of your time really is spent, you know, kind of digging into them again and again and again. And if you're reading your own words and you kind of suddenly find yourself going to Twitter or, uh, oh, why don't I clean the living room? And look, I know, I know writers live by uh, procrastinating and not getting um, the butt in the seat. But um, I think if you're finding yourself, you know, you're, you're there and then you find yourself, oh, let me go get a glass of water. Like. I think there's often a, a sense there that something's not working. And so maybe don't get the glass of water and note that this is something that we need to focus on um, more closely.
0: What are some telltale signs that what's not working is structural within the plot itself? And what are telltale signs that it's just, the, the plot's working fine, the author's just taking two pages to describe the coffee shop that they're meeting in or whatever.
1: Um, so one of the things that I, um, really like to think of every story. And this helps me for for plotting and piecing. Um, I like to, I think that every every story can boi- be boiled down into a few questions um, or you should be able to, to boil down your story into a few questions. What does my character want? What's standing in his way? What happens if he gets it? What happens if he doesn't? Um, and I'm gonna totally mess up what each of these stand for. But I'm gonna try it anyway. So um, what does my character want um, gives you, you know, your desire that's kind of pushing your character through. What's standing in your way um, is your obstacles and together um, those create your conflict. So, you know, whatever's standing in your way is preventing your character from getting their heart's desire. And the rest of the novel is really being spent um, fighting against that blockage to to overcome it. Um, What happens if you get it and you don't get it, those are fueling your motivation. Um, So um, the dread of not getting the thing is what's often driving your character's emotions. Um, So what happens if you get it is is setting up your stakes. Um, And then, obviously, the journey to get that thing is. It's really the, the bulk of your plot and everything else that kind of, all those pitfalls and like, all the awful stuff you're throwing at your character along the way. That's, that's what makes it interesting. Um, so I like to tell, you know, no matter how complex the story, I like to tell authors like, stop, go back and answer those questions. And if you can't answer those questions, then you know that there's a, a plot problem um, and there's probably a motivation stakes problem so when I'm editing I often find myself going back to those questions but also you know maybe we we think we've established um what a a conflict is but as you're going along um you start saying well is that is that enough of a conflict you know is that does that feel enough um to satisfy and sustain a reader Um, and That's something that you really dig into um, in the revision process. But um, if you suddenly find yourself being like, "Eh, is this really enough? Then that's probably that you need to drill back down into the plot and and figure out some of those pieces. Whereas if you feel like you have all of those hitting and um, you're kind of going along and it just feels like it's taking a really long time to get to the next thing um, that feels like it's a step toward progress, that's probably where we need to go in and see if everything there is really necessary or if there are some areas that we can kind of cut to get us there a little bit quicker.
0: Yeah, cut out the house of Tom Dombadil, at least five of those meals and get those kids because it's <laughs> not Doom. <laughs> so, um, oh, I had a follow up on that. Oh, wow, uh, steaks. How, what's a, what's a good way to know if your steaks are high enough and but also plausible within the story. What's the test for them?
1: Um, well, it really depends on the story. Um, you know, stakes don't always have to be big to feel big. Um, and I think that's especially true in um, in stories that um it's maybe an internal conflict um, but and so it's you know, maybe small pieces working but it's about the emotional resonance of them. So it doesn't have to be a big event um, for the stakes, but it has to be something that has um, great meaning to the character. Um, And so if you find yourself hitting a point where um, the character is, what the character's up against is not, ultimately really that big a deal for them, you know, it's it's too easily dealt with, and your stakes probably aren't high enough. Um, and I think that's probably also too why we say throw the kitchen sink at, at characters. You know, it should always be plausible. Um, you're not going to have a hurricane and then a tornado and then um, a, a biological virus, you know, thrown at your character all back to back to back. If you did, well, maybe... You could, it's probably now no longer a plausible story. Um
0: But definitely not boring.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but um but you know it's I like characters to suffer. Let them suffer a little.
0: <laughs> Me too, even my favorite ones. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it makes them stronger. <laughs>
0: Uh, for the greater good, you you take the punishment so the reader will be entertained. Thank you, character. We appreciate your sacrifice. <laughs> and then um, you mentioned uh, prose being like music, and Dr. Uh, Padma Vigitraman, uh was on two episodes back, and and I, I was asking her because she's very. Um, One, she's just a superhuman. Uh, I think that the next evolution will all be her. (laughs) But she is uh, pretty equally balanced between her left brain and her right brain because she's a scientist. She's an oceanographer. Uh, She's been an instructor for schools. But then she also writes, uh, she wrote The Bridge Home, which just is an amazingly moving novel. Um, It's one of my favorite reads thus far of the year. Um, So she has both those sides um, uh, of her brain uh, working and some some sort of balance that seems to be seems to be working out quite well for her uh, and so i asked her how do you keep those two sides what skills apply and she said well everything in a way is mathematics, including language and certainly music. And because I can see it over here, when it comes to fiction, I can see it there as well. So I've been obsessed with this idea of prose-like music, because I I feel like I have very workman prose. It'll get the job done, by golly. The stakes are always going to be high. I'm really good about keeping lots of tension through every chapter. But the prose itself, uh, there's only a handful of passages I've ever written that I could see somebody, you know, quilting on something and hanging up in their home. That's just not my specialty. Uh, so how do you drill down uh, on prose and make sure that you get it uh, melodic uh, and, and flowing in that way?
1: Um, well, I think when I think of prose as music, um, I think about it on several, you know, different planes, I guess. Um. So, so some of it is going back to those... Um, this rhetorical devices that um, I think that we often, well, as writers, we we may or may not appreciate, but I think that they're often you know drilled into our heads um, in in middle and high school and then promptly forget forgotten by most of the population. Um, and so there, I'm talking about um, maybe tools that we think about more in terms of poetry: um, alliteration, assonance, um, simile, metaphor. How how those pieces are working. Um, And I think it's just a nature um, of communication that some of that um, we're doing without even realizing it. So, you know, sometimes it's thinking about um, how the the language is flowing together, Um, you know, do you have a a lovely part of a passage where you're you're using your alliteration or assonance to create a specific effect. that's on kind of a really micro level. Um, But when you're pulling back, um, when I talk about prose as music, part of it is just thinking about sentence structure um, and how those sentences are being strung together. If you um, are using a lot of sentences that are the same length, um, this is a book, it is great, I love it. You know, all of those have three words. And over time, it kind of creates this droning effect um, that it's boring and it kind of puts your your reader to sleep. But if you start varying your sentence length, um, you know, some sentences are really short. um, Some sentences can go on and on and on um, for lines and paragraphs if you are putting them together properly. Um, All those together can, create a much more engaging experience in reading. And if you're really, really focused on it, you can actually use the flow of that to create effect. So um, I probably am guilty of really liking sentence fragments, um, but I think I like them because they can create an abruptness that you might need um, conveyed in a specific moment. Um, And um, again, this is something that maybe you hone on you hone in on um, really specifically at the latter stages um, when you're really polishing um, and thinking about how your language can um, mirror the the mood you're trying to set with your writing. Um, and, you know, not all writing needs to do this, of course, um, but um, I find it's kind of, it's kind of like the, the icing and decoration um, on there, perhaps that's not the best uh, metaphor. It's, it's all the little things that um, are there that most people probably won't notice, but the few who do will really see the mastery of it. And it's not that hard.
0: <laughs> who are some authors you might recommend that you you feel have, have nailed this, um, that uh, people listening and watching could go out and read to, to get a good example of, of how it's been done well?
1: Oh, well, I'm gonna go back to Out of the Easy because I just think that the that uh her her use of language is just so beautiful um in, in what she's able to evoke through it. Um you know, I think I'm gonna go to one of my authors. Um I think Tara Sim, um, who's the author of the Timekeeper trilogy, um has some passages in her writing that are just stunning. Um, And she's really great at um, being very uh, practical in her writing when it's necessary, but also knowing um, when to take those moments to pause um, and really just wrap you um, in a scene. And that's all done through her her mastery of language and picking the exact right words and knowing um, when to use long, luxurious passages and when um, you know in a really dangerous setting um, you know the the language is quick and short and often violent um, and she's just really skilled at uh, finding that right balance there.
0: Perfect. Let's see. So if somebody is uh, watching, listening to this, and they're thinking, "You know what? I listened to previous guests, uh, Mary Cole and Amy Tipton, both wonderful, incredible editors, but they were busy. So Allison, <laughs> Allison S Weiss, I have to, I have to reach out to her. Uh, let's try with the phone consultation first. How should an author prepare for that? How should they set themselves up to make sure they get the most out of them?
1: Um, I think that I, I like to be. I like to be a bit of a planner who is also prepared to, you know, kind of go off in whatever direction we need to go off in. Um, but I think you know, if there's specific things that you're hoping to get out of that call, make sure that you at least have some questions set up in advance, um, and they can kind of be the the guide and outline for you, um, so that if we do get off on a tangent or we finish a topic and uh, you're not really sure. Where to go now, because that idea just flew out of your head well you have you have your kind of game plan in front of you, so you at least have something to refer back to um, you know i I want people to feel like um, the the time they're spending with me is productive um, but you know I also am not scary, and I don't want them to to psych
0: themselves out either. I disagree. And people can't see below the screen, but I am shaking. (laughs) Well, Allison Weissman, I have so many questions to ask you about uh, editing and publishing and tips for writers. Because obviously, you've got a wealth of of experience and knowledge on those subjects. So obviously, my next question is, have you ever seen a flying saucer? And do you believe in them?
1: I have not seen a flying saucer. I do believe in them. When I was um, probably in elementary school, my brother was in high school and had, or at whatever phase when he had braces, um, he also had to wear that, that lovely headgear that I hope nobody has to wear anymore. Um, but we were, I don't know, we, we were pretty sure that he was getting alien signals, alien radio signals on there. So I, I do <laughs> believe they're out there.
0: Um, how, uh, how, how, how were you able to determine that, that that's who those signals must be from?
1: I don't know we we just decided it was. <laughs>
0: we uh i have uh uh two sisters and a brother and when we were young uh we'd get a big bag of potato chips and we didn't want to eat the ones that were still kind of green uh nowadays i think they've got enough food coloring and other stuff that they pump in there it's not a concern uh, but back in the day you used to get the occasional green potato chip and we convinced uh my little sister that those had a little bit of kryptonite on them and if you ate enough you would get superpowers so she would eat all the green chips as fast as she could and then, and then we'd have the rest for ourselves
1: that's for one sibling abuse that's just
0: something <laughs> a, that's youngest, Oh, so. she was fine. Well, when she came around and started talking again, it wasn't an issue. Was <laughs> well, let's, uh, lots of questions uh, about editing and working with authors and, and practical tips that people can apply. Um, but for those that are thinking that editor sounds like the perfect career choice for me, uh, let's go back a little bit. When did you, did you originally want to be a writer? Or when did you know that editing was, was what you most wanted to focus on?
1: I wrote a lot in elementary school and middle school and high school. Um, I don't think that I ever said I want to be a writer. Um, I definitely wasn't saying I wanted to be an editor at that point either. Um, I, I went from wanting to be a fighter pilot to a paleontologist, to a lawyer, to an environmental lawyer, um, and then figured out if I was going to be an environmental lawyer, that meant that I'd have to work on the wrong side of things if I wanted to make any money. So if I wasn't going to make any money anyway, I might as well do something I love with you know, with books. Uh, that's yes, excellent. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think I have a glimmer of thinking about being an editor um, when I was in high school, um, maybe because I was at um, a schoolmate's house and her mother was an editor for textbooks. Um, but I really started thinking about it seriously um, when I was in college and um Honestly, I was looking for something to do over a summer that wasn't working for local government as I had the last several years. Um, so I started kind of searching around publishers and, you know, were there internship opportunities, that kind of thing. Um, and I found the description for the Random House program, and it sounded so great. There was a testimonial for somebody who um, had worked in, in a children's editorial department. And I said, I could read children's books for a living. That would be the most amazing thing on Earth. Um, And I was also, unfortunately, a year too young. So um, I went and worked um, in local government again for another summer. Um, But then the next summer, um, for the next summer, I applied and I I got into this program. And I quickly learned that being an editor does not mean you're reading children's books all day for um, a living that that is um, a glorious part of it, but it is a small part of it. Um, Being an editor, I think is much more um, about being a project manager. Um, As um, a colleague recently said on Twitter this week, um, you're doing a little bit of everything, um, or at least you need to have a sense of how everything works to make sure that everybody else is on board. Um, and I like, I like knowing how everything works. And I think that's part of what drew me, um, to being an editor. Um, I like understanding all the pieces and I like, um, specifically when I'm working with authors, I like the idea that I am a coach. And for me, that means sometimes I'm there to really boost you up. And sometimes I'm there to be tough and, and, you know, really push you to, 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 Bring out the best. Um, I love I loved the idea of finding um, gems that were maybe not in their shining glory and being but being able to see what they could be um, and working with somebody to to achieve the best end of them. Um, and I think that's why I still love doing what I do. So
0: what uh, what does your average day look like as an editor?
1: Um, well, my average day as an editorial consultant looks a little bit different than my average day in house. Um, but I think my average day as an editorial consultant, I, I have the projects that, um, kind of are lined up and I, I try to be very organized in, um, my order of, of. Um, clients that I have signed and, and what I need to focus on every day. Um, but I often start with some of the small kind of administrative stuff. So, emails that accumulated, um, if I have service queries, um, just kind of touching base early on, um, because I think communication is really important. And, um, you know, I, I, I try to be prompt in getting back to people. Um, you know, if there's some quick emails that need to be exchanged, um, to clarify, um, or provide pieces for, especially for some of my corporate clients, I like to try to knock those out. Um, and then I may be sitting, um, kind of reading a project and taking notes, um, for a few hours. Um, I may actually be editing in a project and kind of really working in the manuscript, um, and, I do that, you know, for probably, you know, there are breaks involved, but probably for, you know, the majority of the day. And then at the end of the day, um, you know, any last bits and bobs that I need to finish up. But then, you know, I'm trying to be better about not working insane hours and kind of also having a little bit of work-life balance. Um, but when you're in-house, um, I think that there's not really a typical day um, because you never know what's going to come your way. So when I was in-house, I would try to start with emails in the morning, um, thinking that you would clear them out. The emails never clear out. But um, you might have some scheduled meetings. You might have somebody drop in and suddenly you're talking to them for an hour about some problem. Maybe there's a crisis you need to solve. Um, Maybe um, a manuscript comes back from copy editing. Um, And so now you need to turn your attention to that so that you can um, get it back to the author and give them as much time as possible to go through it um, and make their changes. Um, Maybe somebody calls you and pitches you a book and you get into a nice long conversation with them. Um, I kind of always enjoyed the the way that the day was always a little bit different um, and that you might have like your key things that you were aiming to do, um, but that, you know, it might not go that way. At the same time, it, it does make your time. I mean, it, it can be stressful. It can be really hard to kind of plan. I think you'll hear, hear every editor and agent say that they just don't have enough hours in the day, that um, there are so many projects that you wanna work on and you just wanna put all your attention to them all at the same time, and you can't. Um, I think it's fairly typical for um, editors and agents to have to do some of their work on their own time at home. Um, so I certainly was doing a lot of manuscript reading um, at home. Um, I would- What kind of
0: hours were you putting in at that point?
1: Um, I mean, when things were really high volume, I could come home, eat dinner, and then work until 10 sometimes. Um
0: that was like when it was really
1: bad. Um,
0: you know. it was that like a 13, 14 hour day, something crazy like that? Yeah,
1: sometimes. Um, I think I think people are trying to be better. Um, I know that I certainly realized it was getting out of hand. And so I was trying to consciously um find cutoff times. Um, but you know, I think I think that's on every um, publishing professional to figure out the the work life balance that works for them, um, and you know that's I think that's also part of growing in your career um, in in figuring out yes the stuff has to get done but um, you know I also need to to breathe so I don't go insane um, and figuring out where that line is.
0: And a day like that, and you were still coming home and, and reading right before bed for pleasure
1: um i think I think honestly, I was probably reading manuscripts instead of for pleasure at that point um because the manuscripts had to get read um but um that was that was not the ideal having to read manuscripts at night, and that wasn't necessarily reading um manuscripts I'd acquired that was probably more likely reading manuscripts that were on submission um but you know, you do what you have to do to get it done.
0: <laughs> so how does that differ now that you're calling the shots? Uh, you're the consultant, you determine I mean, obviously you got to make sure you're, you're' you're hitting your numbers and, and rent's gonna be paid and all that good stuff. but having the ability to, to to plan your day within reason, what sort of hours are you working now? What does your typical day look like? Um,
1: I think that I think my work day for the most part is is a little bit it's it's more manageable. Um, I don't have to worry about, you know, getting to and from work because I roll out of bed. I'm I'm in my workplace. Um, so, you know, I can be a little bit more flexible when I start in the morning. Um, I think I end up working. I have a bad tendency to work too late. Um, so um, I might start a little bit later in the morning, but, you know, work until seven when I shouldn't. Um, and um, which that just means that I eat dinner kind of late, which is probably not the best move, but. Uh,
0: Are you eating but, well, while continuing to work? That's a problem I have. Some of my wife complains <laughs> about it. Come to the table like, no, I, I have to read this.
1: <laughs> but, um,
0: yeah, I, I think that my,
1: I think it's a little bit more of a balance if I need to take a break. I think it's, I can take a break a little easier without kind of guilt, um, of, because I know that it's, you know, I can go back to it. Um, you know, I tend to still do some work on the weekends, um, but it's usually only kind of a few hours and that's a, you know, it's a choice that I, I make to keep things moving. Um, I think you just have a lot more control of, of your time. Um, and, you know, if you decide that you're going to not focus on work for the day, that's fine, you're gonna to have to make up the work at another point, or maybe your deadlines get pushed or you don't get that client or, um, but you kind of figure out the balance that, uh, that feels right for you, as long as, as long as you're feeding yourself and paying the bills.
0: <laughs> Very crucial stuff. I find that uh, I love to read and if I'm drafting, I read even more because I'm so excited to have a book that's done that I don't have to worry about it. It's not anything to do with me. I could just let somebody else do all the work, but when I'm uh, heavily editing at the end of the day, if I've been just staring either at a printed page or a manuscript, it's time for a video game. It's time for a movie. Let me do something that's the complete opposite. So, I have time for a walk. Uh, let me come back refreshed. Do you find that, or can you still read for pleasure even as you're doing so much reading for work?
1: I can definitely still read for pleasure. For some for some reason in my brain, it's just I have a I have an ability to kind of shut it off. I. Rarely when I'm reading a book do I start kind of editorially analyzing it. Um, which I know a lot of people do. I if I'm reading for pleasure, I tend to just leave myself in the book. If I am starting to editorially analyze it, then there's probably there may be problems with the book, perhaps. But I if try not time to find
0: judge another, book.
1: another <laughs> book. So like I try not to judge that. Um, but um, I'm kind of a news junkie, so um, if I'm not doing super deep editorial work, um, the news is probably on in the background um, for a lot of the day, Um, but at night I tend to, um, you know, shut things off. I love Twitter, so I'm on Twitter a lot, Um, and we can talk about that maybe because I also um, use Twitter to help editorially as well. But, um, you know, I'm just kind of goofing along online, um, watching the news or watching Netflix or whatever. You know, I I think I use that nighttime to just kind of decompress and reset my brain um, so that I can be fresh the next day.
0: I am (laughs) also a political junkie. I'm trying so hard to recover um, but I'll, you know, I'll, I'll have the news on first thing in the morning while I'm getting my coffee and, and everything set up and then I'll have it on later in the afternoon. And I keep trying to tell myself that watching anchors comment on, on the events isn't helpful beyond the initial fact, just read what happened and then the rest of your day could be free. I, and sure. when I figure I had to do that, I'll let you know.
1: <laughs> I think part of the problem with that is that There's constantly breaking news, so even though you're hearing the same things reported over and over again, there's constantly new things added. So it makes it hard to cut off.
0: Well, hopefully, we'll eventually get a new POTUS, and the news will be go back to being less interesting all the time.
1: Um, Good fuel for (laughs) Buck.
0: I'm sorry.
1: Good fuel for dystopian books right now. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's the upside. Uh, America might be over, but our dystopian literature has never been hotter. <laughs> well, let's, let's move on because I, I tried desperately not to get uh, into politics. Uh, I do want to talk to you about Twitter, but first I want to go back to this idea of somebody that's, that's watching or listening that wants to become an editor. Um, what training did you do to prepare for the role? What would you recommend others do who want to get into editing?
1: Um, so I did my I did my internship. Um, I did, I was an English major in college. Um, you do not need to be an English major, um, but I um, have always had strong writing skills. I would say that if you want to be an editor, it's really important to read and read widely and to have strong writing skills. Um, I was on the editorial board of a magazine when I was in college. Um, and so, you know, and I had been on the editorial board of, um, my high school's literary magazine as well. So I had kind of gotten to the use, um, used to the process of of reading content. And then, um, you know, figuring out what the right mix was and you know starting to to develop those skills of of filtering out what is there and what maybe needs work and is not a right fit or isn't right a right fit now. Um you know any kinds of those activities I think are really great to start developing some of those skills. Um, If you have the opportunity to volunteer in a library or um, work in a bookstore, um, those can be really great. Um, If there are um, writing coaching or mentoring opportunities, um, I think those are also really useful because they teach you skills about giving feedback diplomatically. Um, And then, you know, just in general, I think it's a good idea to know what's going on in the market um, and how do you do that. Um, most of the trade journals um, have free newsletters that are really great and easy to subscribe to. And everybody in the trade is reading those and you can read those too and they don't cost you any money. Um, but they kind what of- are, give you... uh,
0: some, What are some specific trade journals you'd recommend people go ahead to sign um, up for?
1: You know, if you're in the children's in the children's game, um, children's bookshelf from Publishers Weekly um, comes out usually twice a week, um, and it is fantastic. Um, and you're getting a sense of what's kind of going on promotion wise, but also what editors are buying, um, what the big news of the day is, you know, any of those pieces. Um, School Library Journal has one, Kirkus has one. Um, Shelf Awareness has a really great one that will do some children's YA coverage, but also covers adult content. Um, you know, all of those are really great resources. Um, you know, you can read the, you can read what exists in book sections of um, newspapers. Um, you know, I subscribe to the New York Times, so I get my book section every week. Um, but, you know, just try to read widely um, and um, those kinds of pieces also help in figuring out um, where you might want to focus a little bit, a little bit closer. It um, makes you sound like you know what's going on uh, when you get that first interview and, and they're asking and, you know, that's, that's impressive.
0: So just having that knowledge going into any interview you can find with a publisher, yeah. the, the more prepared you are. You're going to set you up. I
1: think this is something from when I was interviewing, this is something that I, um, or when I was, yeah, when I was interviewing, when I was looking at cover letters, this is something that I noticed that always drove me a little bit crazy. So I will offer this piece of advice um, in the hopes that, you know, some future publishing professional um, sees this and, and learns it you know, go do direct research on where you're interviewing. Um, you know, when I was at Egmont, um, we were a subsidiary of Egmont UK. Um, and one of the series that Egmont UK published was, um, let me stick, It's a series of unfortunate events. And so I was constantly getting cover letters for internships. Um, you know, I love a series of unfortunate events. You know, it's one of my favorite books. Well, that's great, but that's, not the company that you're interviewing with, and we have a website, and you can easily see what we do publish. Um, and so to me, that told me that they had sort of put a little bit of work in but hadn't really done the work. Um, and what how does that really reflect um, on you if you're, um, if you're interviewing for a job, or you could actually, you know. Are you going to do part of the work for me? Or are you going to do all of the work? Um, now, I I also recognize that there are, um, you know, economic concerns and, you know, I'm, I'm not telling you to, to go spend a fortune on things. You know, you can spend a fortune on um, these publishing master's programs um, or these uh, post-college um, publishing programs. Um, and I think, you know, if that's, the route you want to take i think that's a, a wonderful route to take um but they're very expensive and i don't know that they're i don't think that they're essential um i think that there are other ways to get there
0: so back when you were checking cover letters and deciding who to interview was that not much of a difference maker either way
1: yeah, i i you know i would see that you did that that was great but um that didn't mean that I gave you any more weight than somebody who had been a bookseller or somebody who had, um, you know, written for their, you know, worked on the the newspaper staff at their college. Um, you know, I, w- I was more impressed with um, you showing me that you had done a little bit of real research about my company and that you had a sense of the current market, you know, that you weren't saying, oh, my favorite book is Harry Potter. But, you know, and if it is, that's fine. But like, you need to be able to justify that. You know, it's, don't, don't go with the easy answer. Um, go with the, the, I actually am invested in this industry answer. <sighs>
0: Well, justified. I mean, if you'd said The Fellowship of the Ring, I'd say, what, what are you even talking about? But Harry Potter, especially if you said Harry Potter and the <laughs> God of Fire, fair enough. That makes sense to me. Um, but she's probably what follow that up with two or three current books that are that have just yeah. come out the last year that you also really enjoyed.
1: You know, I think current books are always, um, you know, and they don't have to be, you know, like it published yesterday. Um, but I think current reading shows that at least you have a sense of what's going on now not what was going on you know if you if i go if you're interviewing and you say that your favorite book um or if i say what's the last book you read and you tell me harry potter if that's what you're that that's the last kid's book you read well if that's because you reread it every year and it's you know a very important part of your um you're kind of reading aesthetic and culture well we can have a conversation from there and i and you know maybe we talk about some other things that you love about that but then we can branch into other books if that's because that's the last kids book you read then you're probably not suited for a kids a kids lit job a kid lit job where um you really need to know what's going on now um so that's kind of how I mean, perhaps you are, but you're not showing yourself well that way, I
0: would say. And I imagine, I don't know that this is true, but I imagine uh, that editorial jobs within publishers are, there's just a, a huge amount of competition because who wouldn't they want are, to do that, right?
1: They are very competitive. Um, I think that it's because that's um, maybe the best known role um, in a publishing house. Um, but there are so many um, fantastic jobs that are essential to the process that um, I think people don't realize that might be a great fit for them um, because they've just heard of editors. Um, so, I mean, I myself, I, I knew I wanted to be an editor, but I actually started as a sales and marketing assistant um, and then moved over to editorial Um if you know what you want to do, you should do the thing you want to do. You should go in at that, don't try to get a job to switch. Um, but if you aren't sure, then, you know, perhaps there's some more research to be done. Um, do you really love um, kind of pitching books and, and getting other people really excited about them? Well, then maybe maybe a fit in publicity um, or, or sales and marketing is a better fit for you. Um, are you somebody who really, really loves language um, and grammar in a minutia way that I don't? <laughs> um, you might be really great at um, the, the copy editing, proofreading side. Are you really great at um, keeping things on schedule and, and, and sticking to that kind of game plan and making sure all of your friends are on schedule too? Um, Managing editorial might be really great for you. Um, There are so many different facets that um, are really exciting. Um, You know, do you love the idea of um, taking a book and then turning it into a movie or an action figure? You know, that's subsidiary rights and it's super fun, Um, but who's heard of subsidiary rights or knows that that's, you know, something you could do for your living? Um, so I think that's, um, that's part of why it's so great, um, that there's become so much more open communication, uh, um, from publishing professionals about, um, what they do and, and why they love it and they're passionate about it. Um, and that I think there's, I think social media has made it a little bit easier. Social media and, and, and forums like this have made it a little bit easier to kind of open up to the, the broader spectrum of what's out there.
0: Really nerdy question that I don't know if anyone will <laughs> be interested but in me. Uh, but when you're line editing, are you using just the Chicago Manual of Style? Is there a house manual that's come out that, that tells you this is how Edgemont does it or whoever you're editing for? Um, how do you make those determinations?
1: So, so most, um, I, I would say most trade publishers now model um, their house style on Chicago Manual. Um, I certainly have a copy of Chicago Manual. Um, I will say that um, as a as a acquisitions developmental editor, um, I pay attention to grammar and those things. But that's probably not the most specific of my concern. Um, if if you're looking for somebody to catch every comma and every um, you know grammatical faux pas, you you're probably um, better off looking for um, somebody who specifically is focused on copy editing and proofreading. Um, I, I think that my con- my focus and concern is more about making sure the story is, great, is as great as they can be. Um, and there are people who are really um, focused in and amazing at um, making sure that all of those mechanics are, are polished and beautiful um and they're really really good at that and they're really important in the process and they don't get enough credit um and they the world would not exist without them <laughs>
0: God bless them. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, another question occurs to me I should ask you, um, just because I know that um, we've got some literary agents uh, who, who regularly listen and, and watch the show. Um, back uh, when you were being wind and dined by literary agents, headed to lunch, getting phone calls, what were the kind of techniques that would work on you to at least convince you to take a look at a project versus what turned you off completely?
1: Um. I would say that I was actually usually pretty open to people pitching me. Um, I I like to try to go into projects with an open mind because nine times out of 10, it's the project you didn't really think you were looking for that you fell in love with. Um, So I was usually pretty open about it. Um, I, I was not really a fan of, super gimmicky pitches you know I want I want the hook I I think it's probably similar for for writers when they're querying I want the hook and I want you know some sense of the project um if I'm being a hundred percent honest I I actually didn't really read query letters I would just send content to my kindle and then just pick things and read it (laughs) So, sorry, agents, but I've heard, I've actually heard a lot of editors who, um, there, are, there are many editors who do the same thing, but they are important in that, you know, once I've acquired the book or if I'm trying to acquire the book, you know, that's when I really go in to drill down on um, information I might need to, to pitch for acquisitions. So um, if I'm trying to figure out how to explain this fantastic book that is really kind of um, off the wall then, and I'm having trouble figuring out how to kind of encapsulate it in a short way, um, seeing how somebody else did that, you know, can help, um, even if I end up tweaking it um, a little bit for my audience. Um, but, um, and it certainly was also useful when I, you know, had to write copy in-house, sales copy, um, or even kind of consumer facing copy as a place to kind of Use the jumping off point, but not necessarily what I looked at initially.
0: So, even if an, uh, a literary agent was just as friendly as could be, sent you a basket of fresh baked muffins, at the end of the day, you're going straight to what does it look like? Is this a quality project?
1: Yeah. No, I, I don't. Yeah, it's not about the muffins, it's about the writing. So, um, I think you'll hear out from a lot of people, gimmicks are just gimmicks. Um, gimmicks are really great when you're trying to get consumers to buy the book. And it's, you know, let's send out um, a copy of the book with, I definitely had a, a a buzz box once that came with like a bag of microwave popcorn. Um, and, you know, maybe that is like a fun additional extra, you know, everybody loves your swag, um, but uh, I don't know that. At the end of the day, I'm not real. I'm not really sure that swag is what's getting people to read the book. It's, you know, that it's a great premise. You know, the character sounds fantastic. Um, there's something about the story itself that you that you want to dig into.
0: Well, fair enough, and i I'd, I'd say they never work on me, but uh, Laura Martin. <laughs> Uh, got me a, um, a little plastic Tyrannosaurus. I've still got it over here on the shelf. Uh, I was like, all right, I will read your dinosaur book. You have convinced me. And then it turned out to be a wonderful book. And then Laura and I became friends. Uh, that's the one time I could think of that that gimmick, I, it was me specific. I don't know how many other uh, bloggers out there will be swayed by a, a dinosaur, uh, but I've got a five-year-old and he was as excited about it as I was. So <laughs> that one worked you know, oh, out. The well, let's uh, let's talk about Twitter because you are on 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 Twitter frequently, and I don't like Twitter. I am addicted to reading other people's tweets. I like to like mm-hmm. and retweet, but I've wasted an entire afternoon. One one example that this displays this is in my mind. Uh, is I made the bold statement that the third Christopher Nolan Batman movie, obviously, you can see all these Batman toys behind me. I'm a fan. I like Christopher Nolan's Batman movies, but I thought The Dark Knight Rises was a little bit weaker than the other two, and that's what I put out there. And I spent like two hours being bombarded by Batman fans that thought I had committed heresy. No, it's the greatest of the three. It's it's so amazing. I'm like, guys, I'm on your side. I bought my ticket to the movie. I bought the merch. I (laughs) like Batman. I just thought that one had a couple of weak spots. It was a little bit dumb. There's not nearly enough Batman. And, And after that, Um, Having lost two hours of a day, I said, well, that's enough Twitter. I'm going to put my phone over there. I don't need to tweet except when I have something genuinely uh, interesting to say or I'm I'm promoting our conversation, another conversation, something on the blog. But you're on there on a pretty regular basis. So what's the best way to use Twitter? And you mentioned you're also able to communicate directly with authors and improve their work with Twitter. So how are you using it that you're enjoying it more than I am?
1: Well, I think that I just enjoy the flow of information and yes Twitter can be very toxic and you know I have especially in maybe the last year or two I have had to have times where I need to step away because it's uh, it's a little too much um, but I think that it can also be a really productive place to um, forge a community to have conversations um, I just really enjoy um, how I can get get snippets of information. Um, and I try to approach Twitter, um, from a very positive position, um, especially when I'm using it in terms of, uh, my work. Um, so one of the things that I have done, um, basically, uh, since I got on Twitter, um, is try to use it, um, as a tool to... Um, provide information to writers and illustrators um, who can't necessarily go to um, writers' conferences um, and get industry um, professional information. Um, long, long ago, um, I ran Egmont's Twitter account. Um, I was Egmont USA for a really long time, and that was that was my Twitter, and it was a corporate account. Um, What a huge
0: responsibility. I would have been paralyzed with fear. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Um, It was, it was a lot of responsibility Um, and it was a corporate account and it was very much about using it to promote um, our, our author's work. Um, But I also um, used it and I think that it was maybe one of the first accounts to do this. Um, I think some of the other publishers accounts um, have, have, Kind of come along to this over the years, but it was also a very personal experience, so you know Down Abbey was really big at that point, so I would tweet about Down Abbey, I would tweet about um, I think the Harry Potter movies were still coming out, so you know I would tweet about going to see the harry potter movie it was It was an ability to kind of connect with people, and it wasn't just about buy the book, buy the book, buy the book um it was about forging um, relationships with people. Um, And I think that that's a really great lesson that um, writers and illustrators can take away um, in terms of how they can use social media to promote their work. You know, sure, especially around release times, you want to use that to say, come check out my work, um, because you want people to buy your book. But Uh, if it's constantly a barrage of buy my book, buy my book, buy my book, and that's all it is, then people just tune it out the way you tune out commercials if you still watch regular TV. Um, Whereas if you have um, actually shown that there's a person behind that, uh, behind that screen, and you've forged connections with people, and then you occasionally say, hey, I have a new book coming out, and I'm really excited about it, and I hope you will be too. You have people who are going to be more excited to want to go buy that book and support you. Um, one of the other ways that I have really enjoyed um, using Twitter, and I, it started as me participating in um, these myriad of Twitter chats that that are now um, available um, if you know the the right times to look. Um, but I used to regularly pop into Middle Grade Lit Chat. Um, It was an hour every Tuesday. um, I think at that point, where we would um, just talk about a different issue in middle grade, Um, and it was a great opportunity to hear what other people were saying. Um, So I started um, a Twitter hashtag um, that used to be Ask Egmont, where you could ask Egmont whenever you know, ask whatever you want about Egmont authors or or any of those things, and Um, you know, when I was no longer affiliated with a publisher that had to turn into something else. So, um, I run a hashtag that's called AskKidlet. Um, and I will, at random times, it is never scheduled, I will just pop on and say AskKidlet is open. Um, and anybody who, um, follows me, um, on Twitter, or even if you don't follow me, but you see the hashtag, you can just come chat. You can ask your questions about writing and it can be really specific. You know, how do I figure out if the pacing is not working in my particular book? Or it can be kind of more general. What are the trends you see? Um, You know, do you have any book recommendations for this age group? Um, And we just, we kind of talk about whatever people wanna talk about. Um, I really love it when it becomes a chat and a conversation. I can't say that always happens. Um, often it's kind of just a, a Q&A forum. Um, but even if I don't have an open session, um, I always have that hashtag open on my tweet deck. And so people are always free to come um, shoot me questions um, and I will answer them. It might take me, you know, a day or two, but I will answer them. Um, because I think that uh, Twitter can really be a community to help us all push forward. And I think that's true of a lot of other um, editors and agents out there now who are frequently doing um, Twitter-esque sessions. Um, They'll just open that up or they'll do, I'm not, I can't say that I'm 100% a fan of um, these 10 query things. Um, I think the the intention is in a good place to kind of teach um, what works and what doesn't. Um, I'm not sure that I, I think it can sometimes be hurtful. Um, so I think we're all trying to find the right way to, to balance that. Um, but, um, you know, it really can be a very productive place for people who don't necessarily have the geographical or financial um, resources to, or accessibility to, um, to kind of congregate for that kind of information. Um, and you know, it's a great way to to kind of improve yourself and make connections that doesn't cost you anything.
0: And what uh, what is your Twitter handle for folks that are? You oh, gonna follow my Twitter you?
1: handle is Ali Oop Seven A L I O O P Seven.
0: And I am at MG Ninja. Uh, so follow me. Look forward to my three <laughs> tweets a week. <laughs> What um, oh my, so many questions. Well, let's talk about evaluating an editor. So I'm an author. I need an editor. I know I need one, uh, and I've decided that I'm uh, probably because I've listened to this show religiously. I'm probably going to go with Mary Cole, Amy Tipton, or Allison West. Um, but assuming you're all busy with with wonderful projects and none of you are available for this, what's the best way to evaluate an editor and to know that you're um, that you're going to get your money's worth and you're going to you're going to be a good fit? Well,
1: I really do believe in doing your research. Um, you know, a, a, a good freelance editor will have a website, I hope, um, where you can see the kinds of books that they've worked on. So you can kind of get a sense of the sorts of projects they've done and whether you are writing a project that would fit into that, um, that basket. Um, you know, if you're seeing somebody whose past work that they're displaying is all picture books and you've written a super gory YA that's like pushing the, the limits, the picture book editor
0: is probably not
1: gonna be a great fit to help you. Um,
0: what if she's really frustrated? She's like, all I've had is these cute picture books. I wish there was some violence. Maybe, maybe you're striking oh. while the iron's hot. Probably you not. Know, know. Maybe, <laughs> but
1: probably not. Um, but also, um, often, usually I hope, um, there will be testimonials there so that you can see, um, what people who have actually worked with this person have to say about him. Um, you know, I'm very lucky to have had, um, some great people who are willing to say very nice things about me, um, but also very specific things about me so that you can get, um, a sense of how I work um, often from um, what people have said about my style. Um, And I'm very, very, again, I'm very grateful for the nice things people have said about me. They don't have to, Uh, but um, so I think those are are two, um, I think that's one way to start your search process. Um, Google is also great um, because you can see interviews and Um, podcasts like this um, to kind of get a sense of personality and and I think personality is also a very um, often a very important part of of working relationships Um, I also really think that you can ask um, you know when you're querying somebody um, be specific about what you're looking for and let them tell you if That's what fits them. Um, That's part of why I ask for people to send me a sample because um, when I give them my top level feedback of where I want to work, part of that is me saying, this is what I see. And if that's not, if that's wildly different from um, the way you view your project, then I maybe am not a great match for you. Um, And that puts the ball in your court to make that decision um, without, kind of that pressure then of um, of you know being deep in it and you've you've maybe paid money already and you're like this is just not a great fit for me um, I have had clients who before they signed me asked if um, I would be willing to send them a sample of editing and you know in all honesty I probably wasn't Thrilled about doing that at a time because it's also a balance of um, you know, the, the the level of how much free labor I'm willing to do. Um but um you what know a,
0: if, a reasonable size sample just to get a taste.
1: But, but if it's you know a short sample, or you know, I, I also very much encourage people if there's specific questions that you have, tell me your specific questions and I will, as part of my assessment, look at the project to give you some answers on those specifics um and you can use that to gauge um but you know if you're reasonable in your request um i think most people are willing to um put a little bit of work into to to show you what they can do so that you can make an informed decision
0: so like what five thousand words too much too too little
1: um I mean, when I evaluate a a sample, um, I usually say about a chapter, Um, so we'll see what a chapter works out to. Um, Perfect.
0: My chapters are usually about 30,000 words long, so that's going to be great.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We'll say a chapter or like maybe 10 pages, how about that?
0: (laughs) Uh, and obviously anybody that's uh, read my work knows that I've never written a 30,000 chapter, uh, 30,000 word <laughs> chapter ever. Uh, lucky if I break a 1,000 words, I like them short. <laughs> short, chapters, so, short chapters can be very effective. So I come and I, I, I've gotten your feedback. This sounds great. You've got wonderful testimonials on your website. Should I then reach out to a couple of your clients? Uh, just to check with them, what other steps should I take to protect my investment and make sure that I'm getting the, edit, the editing that I'm, I'm going to need and it's going to be reliable?
1: I have and had clients... I should clarify,
0: I'm, I'm saying you because I'm talking to you, but obviously we know that you're qualified and wonderful. We're, 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 we're imagining some other editor here.
1: I've had clients um, who've asked me if, um, if it's okay for them to reach out to... Um, some of my authors to kind of get the dirt on me um I have then asked my authors if it's okay um because I also want to be respectful of their boundaries um and in the specific instance I am thinking of um I had two authors who um fit the model really well who were very willing to um kind of make that connection and and um kind of speak about the experience of working with me um, I think you know it's it can be a little bit um yeah you just have to be respectful of other people's space um but you know as long as you're doing that it's it's fine to to ask um, and you know I also part of my process too is that I have an actual agreement that um, people that I sign and that a client signs, um, that kind of lays out expectations um, on both sides. And if I'm not fulfilling those expectations, there are are measures that are then taken. So um, I think it's also making sure that, um, you know, you're legally protected so that you're not being taken advantage of. Um, Maybe that's because my parents are both lawyers. So I come from kind of that background. but at some at some point, um, you know, the, some at some point you just have to take a leap of faith. And um, I think the majority of actors out there are, are acting in good faith. Um, and um, but it's you know it's like going to a, a new car mechanic. You know you can you can do all your research and you know. All your research says that you're in a good position, but at some point you have to make the decision, am I going to the sky or am I not? Um, and, um, but I think the, the majority of people are, are really good actors and,
0: and um,
1: they're not trying to take advantage of you.
0: A nice thing about the modern information age. Uh, is that one? You can listen to a show like this, get a sense that Allison Weiss, obviously, uh, extremely the perfect editor for anybody that would ever <laughs> need uh, need some work done. They're they're going to know that without further research needed. Uh, but also, if you do get a bad actor, and occasionally you'll see something get headlines, uh, an agent uh, smuggling royalties or some editor acting inappropriately, they really only get a couple of shots to do that before every writers' forum is talking about them and uh, and flagging exactly. them.
1: So I think it's, you know, do your research. Um, you know, I, I know when when I'm talking, um, when I'm advising about um, agents, you know, I, I don't give, you know, specific agent referrals um, or anything like that. But, you know, when people are talking about the querying process with me, um, I always suggest going to um, some of those forums to kind of do, do your due diligence, make sure that the agency off, or sometimes the publisher is legitimate. That you know there there are no red flags there, um, and that you know you're going you're going in with lots of questions and you're going in with your eyes open.
0: And then let's uh, talk money, if I might be so crass. I'm not going to ask you specifically what you're charging, uh, but I would ask what is a good budget for an author to set aside uh, specifically just for editing, and also when does it when in the process does an author need to seek out an editor?
1: Um, you know, it, it's a little bit hard to answer only because, um, there is such a range, um, in terms of, um, who you can hire. And, um, I, I would say that the more experienced the person is, um, the more likely that you're going to have to, you know, budget a a good amount. Um, you, you get what you pay for, you get, you pay for the experience that you want, um, so you can find freelance editorial services that are, um, that are quite inexpensive. Um, they, often those people do not have um, necessarily years of, of in-house training. Um, and it doesn't mean that you're not getting good feedback from them, but um, especially for, for people who have very little experience, that's probably more like going and working with a beta reader Um, rather than, um, working with somebody who is very tuned to not only, um, the needs of that project, but how that project then needs to flow through, um, the complex world of, of publishing houses and acquisition and querying, um, and all of that good stuff. Um, so I'm not going to give you numbers because you get what you pay for. Um, you can certainly find, um information online, though, if you Google um, the I remember, Association of Freelance Copy Editors or something like that, freelance editors, um, you'll see a chart that will kind of give you some kind of good ranges, um, kind of give you a, a good starting point for that. Um, and you asked another question, and I forgot what it was. <laughs>
0: Oh, let's see. I asked about money. Oh, I asked when one in the process, should an author start thinking about reaching out to an editor?
1: So I, I tend to prefer to work with people who actually have a project completed. And when I say that, I don't mean, you know, it needs to be all polished and ready to go. Um, but you've hit a point in the work that you feel you no longer, you, you know, it probably needs more work, but you no longer feel you can do that work on your own and you need another set of eyes. Um, I have had people who are still writing the project who, um, have asked to work with me. Um, and you know, that's a writing coach thing. And I, I, in the right circumstances, I'm willing to do that too. Um, but that is a very different process. Um, and it's a, um, very time consuming process for everyone involved. Um, so it has to be really the right project for me to to be willing to do that. Um, but usually, I want you to have actually put some time into it. You know, I don't expect your your book to be perfectly grammar free. like I, I do hope that you have actually done some revising and maybe, have gotten some of the tables out, <laughs> um, because you know that's that's just kind of a level of respect in your own writing um, that you've um, put that work in. Um, in terms of like, when do you have to have an editor? Um, you know, I'm going to be very careful in saying um, that while I love clients and um, I love working with people, and I want to. Um, give them the best service uh, possible, you don't have to hire a freelance editor. Um, I think there's a a popular um, misnomer um, that you need to have your book all perfect before you start querying. Um, And that's just not the case. Um, You know, when I was an in-house editor, I always said if a book was perfect, then I don't have a job to do on it. So why would I acquire it? Um,
0: Have you you ever encountered that, that manuscript out of curiosity? Sorry. Have you ever encountered the manuscript that was already no, perfect? Nothing to do. Never encountered a perfect manuscript. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, sent you one. We'll, we'll see. <laughs>
1: but um, you know, agents agents don't expect perfection. They expect you have to have a really strong idea, and that you've you know taken it as far as you can. And then they're going to give you feedback. And then even even if you sign with an agent. And even if you sign, whether you sign with a freelance, you work with a freelance editor and then sign with an agent, you're going to get feedback from the agent. And then even when you've done all that revision with the agent, you're going to get feedback from the editor. There's, it's just one step in a whole long process. Um, there are other places to, of course, get information. Um, having strong beta readers or critique groups can also give you um, really valuable feedback. Um, but I think the the additional piece that you make get with a a freelance editor is um, not only that kind of structural um, information, but the the extra kind of know how of of the polish that that often is needed to get to, you at, to yes. Um, although that yes is always, of course, subjective.
0: <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> Well, kind of setting an expectation around um, how much time is is going to be needed. Uh, Let me pick a totally random example that is not my last manuscript in any way. But let us say that some foolish person who called themselves the middle grade ninja wrote a middle grade book that was 120,000 words and needed to cut it down to 75,000 words. And I come to you and I say, "Ah, Allison, help me. What have I done to myself? What kind of turnaround time are we looking at? How long is it going to take us to get there? Would you estimate?
1: For a project like that, um, I probably would budget out conservatively at least six weeks. Um, and that's not necessarily that it will take me six weeks to do it. Um, but it's that, you know, it's not just one client. I'm working for, you know, multiple people at multiple times and I have to, you know, I may have things that are already signed up as well. Um, you know, one thing that I, that I am, I'm, realizing more and more is that I I will have people who come to me who are like, I am ready to go right now. And I have to say, you know, I would love to work with you right now, but unfortunately I'm booked up for the next, you know, couple weeks. So I actually won't be able to turn to your project until this date. And I think that's also another important thing to kind of analyze when you're looking at um, freelance editors. If you need somebody urgently, you may be able to get somebody urgently, but they have other, you know, they have other obligations as well, and they may not be able to turn to your project right now. And even if they are turning to your project immediately because they're squeezing you in, that may impact the rate that um, that they charge you, um, especially if you're working on a very tight deadline. Um, if you need it done by this date for some specific reason, um, so I would probably conservatively budget six weeks. Um, just to give me some time um, and flexibility to really dive into your work. Um, It probably takes me, for a book like that, probably takes me, it depends, I mean, it really depends on the pros, but it it could take me, you know, maybe three weeks, three, four weeks to edit it and then give myself a week, which I don't need to write the editorial letter. Um, And then once I turn um, my work back to my, my clients, Um, on their schedule, you know, they, I mean, they, it is totally dependent on what it works for them. We always have a follow-up phone call, um, where we can go through the feedback that they've received, um, to clarify anything, to brainstorm, um, whatever's necessary, um, to kind of give them the most solid launching off point for their next round.
0: And so when you get started to dive in, are you just going to read it once and and make notes or do you start editing from page one and and keep going? How many times are you typically going to go through the manuscript before you get me an editorial letter?
1: Um, It really depends on the project. Um, I think often I will go through and read and take notes while I'm reading. Um, And then I will go through another round and do um, kind of more refined work. Um, and make sure that, you know, maybe there were questions that I was asking in my first read that on my second read, oh, that's actually addressed, and maybe we just need to tweak how it's addressed, but, like, we're fine. Um, I, I think I typically do at least two reads for a project.
0: And then if you're finding an issue... Uh, This character, you know, their motivations don't line up. Are you then going through and marking every time that happens or are you marking it just the once and saying, okay, watch for this, the rest of the manuscript. How do you typically work that way? I'm
1: probably marking as I'm going through when it is um, striking me. So it may not be every time, but I may mark it a few times. um, And then maybe by like the third time you get the picture. So I'm not going to necessarily give you, um, I can't do the work for you. I would say, um, but I will certainly will um, give you some instances, and then um, from there, um, in the in the editorial letter, kind of give you some some broader um, ideas to think about. You know how you might how you might address it. It doesn't mean it's necessarily the right way to do it. It might not be the way that clicks for you. You might find another way to address that problem, and that's fine. Um, but it's kind of getting your brain in the right place to kind of think about solving it.
0: That makes sense. I'm watching the time here and I'm watching it dwindle away. These conversations always fly by so fast. So let's uh, let's turn with what time we have left to getting as much free assistance as we possibly can. <laughs> I'm big on that. Um, so let's start with, uh, well, let's just start with the basic general. What are the most common mistakes that you see uh, writers making
1: in their drafts? Um, well, one common mistake I see is they're not giving themselves enough time. Um, they're trying to rush the process. The process will never, the process does not like to be rushed and it will never be rushed. And I can tell when somebody has actually taken the time to really um, put the work in versus when somebody uh, is like, oh, I just got it out and now I'm sending it off. Um, I got it an out and I'm sending it off, never works. Um, you know, we say that we, writing is really, really hard, but um, I always kind of feel like you just got to get the words on the page. And then it's really the revising that is what makes something sing. And you have to, the revising takes time. And part of the process of that time is not working on the project, is putting it aside and going and doing something else. Maybe it's doing a different project. Uh, Maybe it's going and taking a walk. Maybe it's going and um, painting your living room for a week and then coming back to it. Um, And when you come back, you'll see with fresh eyes, you'll see all kinds of of big picture issues um, popping out that just weren't there before. Um, So I think rushing is definitely a problem. Um, Going back to those four questions that um, I posed before, um, I'm finding quite often that when I'm editing, I suddenly step back and and say, "What's the plot here? Like, what's what's our actual arc? Um, because somewhere along the way in the writing, we we lost it. Um, so, not taking that that writing is very much about um, going and looking at the the teeny tiny little." Uh, <sighs> capillaries on, on the leaves and all the, the details and then pulling back and looking at the whole forest. And you have to be able to go back and forth. Um, and sometimes we forget that you have to take that step back too. Um, and where we started in the story doesn't mean that that's where we ended <laughs> um, in the final product uh, or the the at that moment product. Um, so, you know, taking the time to, to step back and, and assess that actually I kind of lost my way here um, is also
0: a big problem. And when you want to look at a a writer's plot issues do you prefer to get a summary from the writer up front that tells you this is the plot i think i've achieved or do you prefer to just uh, get started read what they've actually written and then determine what the plot is uh, how accurate is the author's knowledge of their own plot a lot of times going in
1: um you know when when people are querying me they usually give me a little bit of a summary of their projects so i have kind of a a sense of it um but I think for the most part, the plot issues end up coming out um, really as we're working. Um, I I can't always say that I I can't honestly say that I have had an author characterize their book as um, entirely like one way, and then I read it, and I'm like, that's not <laughs> that's not what we have here. Um, I have had aspects of of a story um, where that's really come out. Um, And then, you know, I've said, you know, X, Y, Z. And they're like, oh, that's not what I intended at all. I intended this. I intended, you know, J. And then I'm like, oh, okay. Well, if that's what you want, then um, here are some things to think about that might help you get there. Um, And... Actually, I have a really great story um, about working with an author that's about when it's about that, but it's also about when to stand your ground um, as an author um, to protect your work, um, which I think is something that a lot of authors also are um, wary of when they're working with other people. It's, It's very hard to open up yourself to the feedback from others. Um, but I had um, an author, a very dear author who I worked with, who had a romance line um, in her novel, and um, it just wasn't really clicking. And I, I said to her, um, I really want more banter between them. I, I, you know, we need, we, we need more kind of build up. Um, I, I want, you know, it needs to be more Elizabeth Darcy. Pride and Prejudice, for those who don't get the reference. Um, we just, like, need him to be more Darcy. And she she got really, really quiet on the phone. And then she came back to me and said, but he's not Darcy. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I know he's not Darcy. But, you know, we just, we need more of that, like, tension between them. And, and she's like, no, 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 Allison, he's not Darcy. He's Knightley, reference to Emma. If, uh, if. Viewers don't know what I'm talking about. And suddenly when she said that to me, that her intention was this kind of model who was wildly different from this other kind of model, I understood what she had wanted from him. Um, and then I was able to, to step back and be like, okay, great. Let's think about these ways and, and maybe these specific places where you can then be building a better character to get him to that model. And I have to say that the the end result of that was just kind of one of the most spectacular um, romances um, in the books I've edited.
0: Um, and that author, it, of course, was Suzanne Collins. What an amazing story. You no. Know, <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, I, I only wish I had edited it in Suzanne Collins. Um, but um, I think that I think that points to how you can protect your work, um, but also get the most out of um, that collaborative experience Um, and how great that collaborative experience really can be as long as you're communicating well
0: let's uh, stick with characters for a moment. What's the best way for authors uh, to one, avoid stereotypical characters and two, make sure that their characters are consistent, even though hopefully they're changing throughout the course of the plot?
1: Um, it's, it's funny. I was actually talking to a client earlier this week and we were talking about stereotypical characters. Um, and he was very concerned that uh, his characters um, one of his characters was coming across as stereotypical. And I was like, well, stereotypes exist for a reason and you don't have to always avoid them. You know, sometimes there's a reason that you are using it. It's a, it's a model we know. And he, he joked to me, he's like, when it's good, it's a truth. And I was like, well, yeah, kind of. Um, so the, the thing is that stereotypes do exist for a reason and you don't want your characters to come across as badly stereotypical. But it's okay to sometimes lean on um, certain characteristics to kind of telegraph to the reader certain certain information. Um, but you want to be artful and do it. And so my best advice for how you can artfully lean on that is if you're going to use something that's a little bit stereotypical, then you should go into it undermining it. Um, set us up. Um, for one expectation with the character and then throw us something um, in their development that totally gets us questioning that and that often helps lead towards more rounded characters. You know I think the the easiest way to look at this is with a villain character. Um, So often we see villains, um, so often in books I see villains doing that great um, or maybe not so great villain monologue where we get the the whole kind of breakdown of of their entire plan and like how we ended up that way.
0: Sure, Batman and Robin are tied up to the trap, <laughs> and there's all the time in the world to talk.
1: Yeah, all the time in the world, as, as you know that that uh saw blade is is coming towards Batman's head. Um, but and I I have edited out that kind of thing so often. But if we see that kind of stereotypical villain. And then get a sense of um, kind of their deeper role, their motivation. If we start maybe getting some facet of them that makes us shocker, empathize with them, suddenly they're not so stereotypical anymore. They're a little bit more complicated. And that's a much more interesting character to follow. Um, So I think, you know, if you're going to, lean into something and then go undermine it. If, um, I always wanna see characters grow as well. Um, Remember that even your characters that we're not supposed to like so much still have their own um, motivations and reasons for being and those need to be reflected in the story too. And they should probably change over time too because they're, you know, it's all about action and reaction. They're reacting to things. And those things are going to change who they are in some way, shape, or form. Does that help?
0: It absolutely helps. And I'm thinking, what's the best way to make sure your characters are proactive versus passive? And how can you flip that on its head when you're finding passive characters?
1: Um, So I always like to kind of think about, is is a character sitting there kind of, dwelling in their problem? Or are they doing something to change their circumstances? Um, So I think, I think often when you have a passive character, um, it's because they've kind of got mired, and they're not doing the clawing out to get out of their circumstances. Um, And so if you find that your character is kind of just being pushed around um, by the circumstances then that's probably a, a place where um, you've identified a passivity that that you need to find some way to break them out of um, i i think that's probably where i say throw something at them um throw something at them to make them push back um and um that often can get you to kind of course correct to get them um, to move to a more active stance.
0: Well, so even if a character is being pushed around by fate or whatever the obstacles are, they and have to, it's not they time in the story. They have to find story, their shape to push through. I got you. So even if they attempt something and it doesn't work, blows up in their face, at least they tried something that's appropriate. Right? Because,
1: because if it blew up in their face, okay, so it blows up in their face. So then you pick yourself up, and you—how are they picking themselves up to 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 move forward? Because they, you know, if if it blows up in their face and they give up, then story's over, you're done, and it wasn't very satisfying. So it's always about you know them finding their little hole in the dark to to find a new a new tactic to
0: push forward. It helped me overcome one of my number one pet peeves in other people's writing as well as my own. I is the um, scene where the character sits and thinks I forever am trying to to tear that out of my own fiction. Although occasionally, if you've got a character, I I won't have them sit and think, Lord, no, I'll have them doing something. But thinking through the exposition, we need to under the bare minimum, we need to understand to get into whatever the next scenario is that that, that they're headed to where the plot's going to pick up again. What's the best way to do those expositional scenes without literally having the character sitting there thinking about the exposition?
1: Um, this is where I like, where I find um, action and reaction and, and some internal dialogue helps. Um, I think internal dialogue can help to kind of break up a little bit of, of the too much exposition piece of it. Um, but, you know, nothing is more boring than, than a character just like sitting in a room doing nothing or two characters sitting in a room, you know, talking but nothing is happening um, find, I mean, I think it's really dependent on, um, what the story is, but I mean, if you have a character sitting, and you know that you need to get them to another place, um, in a future scene, then, um, I think it can be useful to be like, okay, well, they need to be here in this scene, they're sitting here. How do I like? What is the physical action to get them there? Um, and it doesn't necessarily need to be that complicated. And you might not even need to to um, show all of those pieces of it. Um, I often I see too much description of the the minutia action that just doesn't really matter. Um, but if you can figure out some small pieces t- that are going to work within your framework of your story, um, if you know, your character is sitting wake, uh, sitting on their bed, they've just gotten up in the morning and they need to get to school. Um, that's why we often see them then, you know, go have breakfast. Um, a, little, a little stereotypical here, but like we know we need to get them from the bedroom to school. What are the natural steps along the way? Um, and if we start with kind of those breakdowns of it, then often we can get some of that, the the small actions we need to keep them moving, even as they're thinking
0: through the problem.
1: That makes sense.
0: So that, that gives us some action, even though it's uh, really just kind of filler, but you know stuff that needs to happen while we're getting the exposition that we need. That, that, that makes complete sense. Um, oh, what was my other question for you? Oh, uh, something I'm always struggling with, uh, dialogue. I hate when I read um, uh, one of my own scenes or somebody else's where it's, uh, basically just two talking heads against a green screen, which is sometimes necessary in a rough draft because you've got to get the dialogue down. you got to uh, hash out the conversation. This is what's going to happen. But then what's the best way to go back through their layer in description uh layer in you know body language stage directions all that stuff to keep the conversation It's hopefully an argument um because you know arguments are that they move that's great um what is, is there a, a good ratio um for description of the scene versus just the dialogue
1: um i too cannot stand when it's just two talking heads in a room um and i think as with you know i usually Usually when I'm I'm thinking about dialogue, um, one of my big problems with dialogue is that it often doesn't sound natural. Um, And so my big um, piece of advice on that is to read it out loud. And if it sounds weird in your mouth, it sounds weird in your character's mouth. And you know, you need to fix it. Um, But at the same time, having a conversation is not just talking back and forth with someone. Uh, It's it's not beautifully pulled together sentences. It's often ums and... uh, searching for words and, and and vocalizations, um, you know, wiping the hair out of your eyes, scratching your cheek. Um, So if you kind of think about those moments, and then when you're looking at your, your, your lines back and forth dialogue, um, you know, every few lines, not at the same intervals, mix it up. This goes back to my sentence structure thing, you know, Don't, don't create a pattern with it, mix it up. But you know, every few points, if you need something that to be particularly emphasized or if somebody's made um, kind of a asinine comment, I don't want it to be said in the dialogue. I don't want to know that from a dialogue tag. I'd rather see that from a physical action. Um, Use, you know, little movements to indicate how dialogue um, is actually being conveyed. And um, you know, rather than she said sarcastically, I don't need her to say it sarcastically. If I can't get that from the dialogue, have the other character roll their eyes. And you know, that indicates that there's some, um, some emotional degree there that the line itself may not be indicating. And that's a natural way to kind of
0: give you a little bit more
1: of that, um, that rhythmic break, breakdown.
0: Makes a hundred percent sense. I also just a comment, not really a question. Something else that drives me nuts is characters providing exposition in dialogue unless there's no other way that the other character could know that exposition without them telling. I call that uh TV brain that tells me that the writer's been watching too much TV and, and not reading enough because in TV mm-hmm. you're constantly have people explaining um uh, exposition to the new person or the new character because you have to do it. It's it's all got to be there on the screen. But that's the nice thing about a book is you can just tuck it in there in the description. Yeah. Let the reader know without the characters having to take up their time. With Absolutely. It. So two more questions uh, for you, and we'll call it a podcast. Uh, one uh, thing I've, I've been asking everybody, because I'm, I'm obsessed with this idea, knowing that within the next 10 to 15 years, 75 to 80% of retail stores are gonna go away. We've seen big changes in publishing, lots of consolidation. Undoubtedly, we're probably gonna see some more of that, but people are still gonna wanna read, they're still gonna want books, There's still gonna be authors out there pouring their souls out for us. What? do you see on the horizon as the future of publishing? What do you expect to to see as as major changes in publishing over the next say 10, 15 years?
1: I do think that how people absorb information is dramatically changing. Um, I think it's probably getting harder and harder to get the attention um, to get people to read because there are so many different um, channels to pull them. I still think that the people who read are still going to read. Um, the format may change. You know, we thought it was going to be ebooks, um, and then that didn't really necessarily happen. It might, you know, surge again, but it didn't take over um, the print book the way we thought it was. Um, I think audio is really on the rise now. Um, in fifteen years, the the format may be entirely different than. Um, it is now. It may be something we can't even dream of right now. Um, but people are still going to want stories. It's been that it's just been intrinsic to our culture um, for forever. Um, smart publishers are going to figure out how to adapt and change with that. Um, and uh, other, you know, they're. Maybe more consolidation i I sure hope not. I think that too much consolidation uh, is really a shame and it, it it limits kind of the venue and voices. Um, but there's also been really great work being done um, in 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 small spaces that are growing um, you know i I think um, if you've heard of cereal box, um I think they're doing really interesting things in um, kind of taking both taking content that's already published and breaking it up into serialized format and um, creating their own content that's in kind of little sippable episodes that you can either get the whole content of or subscribe. Um, And they do that in ebook and audio format. Um, I think that's really interesting. Um, I've really been interested in in, um, kind of some of these multimedia formats um, throughout my entire career and how those might change um, how we interact with content. Um, I think that the flexibility is always really important and I hope to see more of that. Um, I think the other way that, that publishing is really changing and needs to be changing is um, that there is a lot more groundwork um, fighting and emphasis for better diversification. Um, in terms of making sure that uh, people from a variety of of backgrounds um, and voices are being heard. And I want to see that. I'm hoping that in 15 years, we won't be having the conversation that publishing is not doing a good job um, and that we will have made true progress. And that involves um, the stories that get acquired and and get published that involves the, the People who are hired um, to make those decisions. Um, and uh, it involves changing some of the, the mindset of how things have been done. Um, to stop listening to, oh, nobody, you know, wants that kind of book because they've never tried that kind of book. Um, and, you know, really giving the the market the space to actually prove that uh there is a hunger for all kinds of different voices. I think that only creates empathy um, and would do maybe a lot more good for us to be a little bit more broad-minded in all facets of our life, um, from being exposed to different kinds of stories in what we read. Um, I think my most fervent guiding principle as an editor is that every child should be able to find themselves in the pages of a book. that they should be able to feel like they can do anything because they've seen characters who can do anything, who they feel connected with. Um, and so I'm hoping that uh, we can, as, as an industry and as a community, really step it up to, to make it so that it's not such a contentious problem, but actually we're, we've done the work um, to, to make the whole environment better.
0: From your lips to the publishing gods here, I 100% <laughs> agree. Uh, we absolutely need more diversity. I look forward to the day when there could be a, a commercial with an interracial family at Cheerios commercial, and Twitter <laughs> doesn't lose its mind. That that'll just be commonplace. That that is a dream I have for society. So please continue to push diversity in books. Make that happen. <laughs> uh, then uh, my next question to you, that I, that I kind of ask everybody, is what is the one piece of advice? that you would impart to any author if you had just this one opportunity for as many authors who are, who are listening or watching right now, what is something that they could do to improve themselves and set their fiction off on the right path? What's the one thing you tell them?
1: Read a lot. Read a lot, study what it is that you love. Um, do the breakdown of why you love that thing. What What is that? author doing that you really love Um, and how do you find your own way to accomplish that same thing? Um, It it involves a lot of time and and study and in the writing end it's, you know, throwing a lot of words on a page that you're probably never going to use. Don't delete those words. You may use them, I mean, delete them from that project but save them elsewhere. Um, because maybe you know 15 or 20 years down the line um, that little scrap works its way into something else um you know no words are wasted they're just not right for that project um, but just read a lot and keep going it is a it is a perseverance thing it is not anybody who thinks that they can 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 write a book and just throw it out there and it's gonna be a bestseller, uh, it's in for a serious awakening. It's it's a lot of work and um, you have to invest your time in it. And I'm gonna add one other thing, Um, treat your writing as a career, it's not a hobby. Um, I hear too many people being like, oh yeah, I write in my my spare time. Um, And if you treat it like a hobby, other people are gonna treat it like a hobby too. Um, Find your writing time, it's sacred writing time get your butt in the seat, do the work. Um, It's not a time for somebody to say, oh, um, mommy, like put the movie on for me. You know, no, when it's writing time, um, you know, make the people close to you understand that this is your time. And unless the house is burning down, you are not to be disturbed. Um, And if that means, you know, if you have family obligations, then that means that you need to carve out you have to wake up at four in the morning to, to get your 15 minutes of secret time every day, then that's what you need to do. But you find your way to have your sacred space um, and treat it as sacred and don't let other people take advantage of it.
0: Couldn't agree more. Now if I get <laughs> you to explain that to my five-year-old, that would really help out a lot.
1: You have to wake up at four in the morning. <laughs>
0: Well, no, that's the uh, that's the thing. Uh, he creeps out of his bed and sleeps right beside his door. So oh, when wow. I creep in the hallway at four thirty, the like, time to get some writing done, he wakes up like, oh, I kind of just slept in and and wrote with a challenge. Oh, right?
1: yeah. <laughs> the good thing is that they get older, and so that may be like the that may be the issue now, but it will not be the issue always. <laughs>
0: Well, that's true, and uh, we had uh, Daniel, author Daniel Kenny, on here. I think it was eight kids, uh, and he still finds a way to publish about eight to nine books a year. Uh, it can be done, and I'm absolutely carving out time that's that's sacred as well. So I 100% agree with you. Uh, well, Allison, this, is, this has been another wonderful conversation. I love this show, um, not just because I'm in it, but in fact, that's my least favorite part. I love going back and listening to these interviews and all the wonderful tidbits and, and information that we're able to collect. I feel like I learned a lot today and I know anybody watching or listening did. Thank you so much for, for carving out this time and for being here today. Uh, and remind uh, esteemed reader, uh, again, where they can find you. Uh, where's your website? Where can they find you on Twitter and anywhere else?
1: Uh, Again, my website is alisonweisseditorial.com, and you can find me on Twitter at alioop7, A-L-I-O-O-P-7, and I'm always very happy to talk to people, Um, and I hope to talk to many of you. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I've really enjoyed this.
0: It's a lot of fun i of course uh, am always at middlegradeninja.com head there read uh, hundreds of interviews with literary agents with authors with other publishing professionals including miss allison uh s wise uh make sure you download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. Don't forget, uh, not this weekend, next weekend, so after we've all seen Avengers, MoCon, May 3rd through May 5th, if you're anywhere in the Indianapolis area, come see me, come see Marie's Broadus and a whole bunch of other great folks. Uh, Allison, I oh, and uh, don't forget, uh, Tuesday. Uh, Tuesday, April 30th, will be our next episode. We'll be chatting with literary agent Elena Roth Parker, so make sure you tune in for that. Uh, Allison, I've been asking our guests to sign off. Our sign off phrase is hi-ya and what have you, so it feels very ninja-like. Will you sign us off?
1: Absolutely. hi and what have you.